Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. John Deach is perhaps best known in fly fishing circles for supervising all of the fly fishing scenes on the Oscar-winning film A River Runs Through It, where he also conceived and executed the famous final fishing scene, doubling for actor Brad Pitt by swimming a rapid while playing a fish. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss John's new book, Graced by Waters, and the healing properties of immersing ourselves in nature. We also discuss John's personal journey through loss, scenes in A River Runs Through It, and more. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Norvice. From their original 1970s prototype to their new legacy stainless steel vice, Norvice has been committed to one thing, efficiency. The company's long-standing slogan, tie better flies faster, truly encompasses what the Norvice fly tying system does. The good folks at Norvice believe you deserve to tie your flies consistently and in less time because of the ease and benefits engineered into this outstanding tying system. For more information, visit www.nor-vice.com and check them out on YouTube to see how you can maximize your tying time by relying on the functions and benefits of the tested and true Norvice. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to check out anchoredoutdoors.com. Our masterclasses are almost ready to post and our membership prices will inevitably be going up. Right now, you can still get in at an honored rate of only $4.99 a month, but prices are doubling soon, so don't wait to get on board. I was born and raised in Southern California, which is where I live now. And uh, that's been a beautiful thing and a tough thing, too, because I love I love the mountains so much. But being a Californian, we we just have to put up with the millions and millions of people that are here to the south of where I live, here in West Los Angeles. 
uh, Pacific Palisades to be specific, which is in between Santa Monica and Malibu. But my book is a lot about that sort of dichotomy in terms of this this concrete jungle, so to speak, and then the actual jungle. That's where I really love to be, and trying to make peace with with that dichotomy in terms of being comfortable in both places. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to dive into your book and and really get into what it's about. But I just mm. want to provide my listener with a little bit more about your history. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a bit about uh, maybe some of your accomplishments because they're very impressive. I think that you may be a little bit understated on some of them. So I'd like to just bring them to light. Where did you, I mean, you grew up fishing, I'm assuming. I did grow up fishing. Believe it or not, here in Los Angeles, we do have some some very good uh, sport fishing opportunities, mostly right here at the beach. The the, the fishing here, of course, 100 years ago is a lot better than it is now, but uh, we've had a lot of success with bringing back the fisheries. We've had issues with DDT and PCBs, uh, but there's been a, a lot of success with uh, bringing those fisheries back, and, and we don't eat a lot of the fish here, although we can. Uh, from the ocean. And then, of course, the Sierras. And we have local mountains as well, which are uh, within an hour from my house. And we have some exceptional fishing, actually. And so there's actually quite a bit of fishing. You just have to really know your way around. And yeah, my dad my dad uh, was an attorney here in the LA area. And then he became a, a real estate developer. And he's still with us. God bless him. Uh, he now lives in Colorado, and we I actually moved to Colorado, but I'll, before I, I go there, what happened in terms of my fishing is my dad loved the mountains, and his father was really not much of a mountain person, but he took it upon himself to 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 go up to the mountains. He grew up in Montebello, which is East Los Angeles, and and he went up there and started, learned taught himself to ski and and became a, an outdoorsman and, and camped a lot and, and got into backpacking, and he actually climbed Mount Shasta and Mount Rainier. And so he turned me on to the outdoors and for him, it was like church, you know, him, it was like, that was, that was his spirituality is, is, and it became mine going out there almost every weekend. We would go up to uh, Mammoth and also up to a place called Cottonwood Creek, which is really where I learned to fish for the first time. And I didn't learn to fly fish and uh, originally for trout. I I learned to uh, fish with salmon eggs, which, you know, Jason Borger, who was, uh, who, I go back a ways with, uh, used to always give me grief about that because, of course, his dad taught him fly fishing from the very beginning. Uh, but I, but I just, I got turned on to that and then we ended up, uh, moving back east and that's where I learned to fly fish. My dad took me to the Orvis school when I was, I think, 11 or 12. So I, I know that one of the things that you've done in your career is work with uh, the movie A River Runs Through It. And so when you mm-hmm. mentioned Jason Borger, obviously that all ties back together. And, and for people who are a little lost, I'll, I'll circle back to that in a bit. But <laughs> obviously you wouldn't be asked to help with The River Runs Through It if you weren't involved in some capacity in the industry as such. So, I mean, unless you were just really good friends with Jason Borger from before, like, can you just kind of tell me how you entered the quote unquote industry or if it started like that? So I, how do I start with that? I started fishing with my dad and then got into fly fishing through Orvis, uh, through the Orvis fly fishing school and ended up going to boarding school back East where I was part of the fly fishing club there at a little school called Holderness. And I got into ski racing. That's why I went back east. I was actually skiing at uh, Mammoth Mountain on the ski team there for two years. And then I went back and 
the ski racing uh, for two years back east as well. Is that one of the reasons why you're friends with Andy Mill? And so, yeah, that's so, so I ended up going to University of Colorado and we actually won the national championship that the first year I was there, but I was on the B team. So I was an alternate. I wasn't even an alternate really, but uh, it, still being on that team was great. It was not an easy team to, to, uh, to make uh, that uh, we had to, I had to run 18 miles and then had to do five miles in under, I think it was six and a half minutes. And of course, back in the day, I could do that. I couldn't come close to doing that now, but I went to University of Colorado. My, my dad and my mom ended up moving to Denver and then to Aspen. Then after University of Colorado, well, actually my last year, I, I ended up uh, teaching skiing in, in Aspen. And that's where I met Andy doing some race clinics. And then Andy and I became fast friends and he was the first one to really teach me how to nymph fish. And he was, he really became my mentor and, and not only in fly fishing, but, but, uh, he asked me to join him in his, uh, ski with Andy Mill television series. So I, I, I got into television through Andy and I also got into being a better fisherman through Andy, but also guiding Andy introduced me to George Odier, who was the owner of a little, little uh, shop called Fothergills. It was in downtown Aspen. And that was sort of all she wrote there is that's how I got into, and, and also writing. I, my first writing gig was interviewing George Odier, who Andy introduced me to. So my writing, my television, and my uh, guiding all really came from Andy Mill. Really, who, who I'm still good friends with. We talk all the time. And uh, although I've not ever f- tarpon fish with him, right. that's the one thing that we, we trout fish. Uh, we go fishing on the frying pan and, and the rowing fork pretty much every summer. You know, cause that's where I guide. So I, so I got into guiding that way. And actually the, the, the Borger connection, you know, that, that was just when I got hired to do river runs through it. Well, uh, there was a bunch of people I brought in and one of the people that I, because I knew Gary had done a bunch of video stuff. So I called Gary and Gary couldn't really, couldn't come out on the set, but he said, you know, why don't you hire Jason as your assistant? And so I did. And, and Jason's very talented uh, caster and artist and was, was uh, integral in helping us with all those scenes. So they reached out to you, the movie. Uh, a river runs through it. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so how that happened, that's a, that that is an interesting story. I was actually attached to uh, the River Y. A guy by the name of Tom Cohen had the rights to that, and this is back about nineteen, probably nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety, yeah, nineteen ninety. We were about a month and a half away from shooting the River Y, and Tom called me one day and said, "Sorry, John, but we're not we're not doing that anymore." At that time, I'd been doing a bunch of outdoor sports stuff other than just the one with Andy. I ended up doing stuff with Powder Magazine and Surfer Magazine and had done a bunch of outdoor videos in the day. That was when the videos first came out in VHS. So I was into outdoor sports and outdoor sports, you know, videography and, and television. And the only thing I'd ever really done in fishing was we would, we used to like go into this. I don't know if I should say that, but we used to, we used to go into this lake. That wasn't exactly a public lake. And there were these fish that were spawning up this creek. And, you know, we would, we tried to make a little show out of these fish spawning. (laughs) But that was about all I'd ever done with fishing. That was it. You know, everything else was, it was uh, skiing and mountain biking and hiking and climbing and stuff like that. And and snowboarding was, it was right, it was before snowboarding. I'm really dating myself here. 
anyhow, Andy brought me under his wing and that's how I got into it. You know, I got into to it that way. And then, you know, when I went back to LA, you know, I was doing, I was actually at Powder and Surfer magazine as the executive producer for the magazine. And they, I got laid off. It was in, uh, it was during one of those layoff periods. And I think I called a wrong number, April. I really do. I think that's what happened. I called a wrong number at Sony and this woman picked up and said production. And we just started talking. And of course I had lost this, this gig at, with Tom Cohen. So I knew Redford was doing that project. And it turned out that this woman was the production coordinator for a river runs through it. And it turns out that the producer of a river runs through it was a friend of mine, <laughs> a friend of the family's that uh, a friend of my mom's, one of my mom's best friends, uh, I'd gone to a dinner party a couple of years before and it was Patrick Markey. So I ended up talking to Patrick. He said, come in because I told him I was interested in the film and it was one of my favorite stories. And uh, we talked and he said, it's great talking to you, John, but we, we've got Orvis and I'll do it for free. And it was one of those times in life where you just think on your feet because I really wanted to do this project. And I said, well, does Orvis know anything about filmmaking? And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, that's a good point. Because I, by that time, I'd, I think I'd had, what, six or seven years of uh, filmmaking under my belt and was also guiding part-time in the summers, still in Aspen. So I could tell uh, after my second meeting that it was going to be tough. And the third meeting, I went in and I decided that I would wear waders and a uh, fly fishing vest. To your meeting? My rod. Yeah. <laughs> to the meeting. And uh, it was a risk, but it worked. I showed Patrick a bunch of pictures of me fishing in, in Alaska and that's all she wrote. And within a couple of days, I was out with Brad Pitt and teaching him how to fly cast for the first time. So that's how it happened. And one of, one of the reasons was they knew they needed somebody with continuity who was in L.A. that also could uh, adapt and go to Montana. Of course, I had been to Montana many times fly fishing, uh, not as a guide, but as uh, as a fly fisherman and as a client of John Bailey's. So that's what that's how John Bailey ended up with us as well. So I knew I knew Borger. And I knew Gary Borger just from the, his wonderful videos. And I knew John Bailey because actually I had floated with him with my dad. And that's really how that happened. So, you know, and then I brought in Jerry Seam because Roy Palm from uh, Frying Pan Anglers in the day, that was his shop. He's a, he's a interesting character. If you ever, that's somebody who would really, I think you'd really enjoy talking to. But Roy's been around the block, but I, I, he'd been in the industry for so long. I called him. It was one of the first phone calls I made. And I said, you know, I, I need a really good caster and somebody who's really kind of built into the, to the industry to help us. And he said, you need Jerry Seam. And Jerry at the time was the rod designer for Winston. So that was one of the first things I did was, was to bring Jerry on. And John and then Jason and a guy by the name of Joe Urbani, who actually I was just talking to yesterday, uh, who had, who was with a company called Interfloof. So he became our fisheries biologist. So it really took a team. You know, we were very close at, the, at that time. It was called uh, Federation, Federation of Fly Fishermen. And they, they were involved. We had elements of TU involved. And one of my jobs was to really try to co-opt as many of the industry folks to be either represented in the film with product, although we never charge them, uh, or just to, to help us with product. You know, and I've, I've done a, t you know, since then, as you probably know, I've done hundreds of shows that have to do with fly fishing, commercials and television shows, and, and then a lot of outdoor sports stuff as well for different uh, cable networks. And But I'm not really doing that much as much anymore because I love to write. 
and I love to fish. One of the things to talk about skipping over runs through it for a moment. One of the things that was a joy was Patrick Markey was uh, approached by Jack Nicholas productions to do a, a, a really cool interactive video on how to fly fish. And the idea was that it would have to do something with a river runs through it. So Patrick and I came up with this idea to take all of the people that we had put together for the team that I led uh, as the department head for fly fishing on river runs through it. And we all brought them all back. And it's too bad because that publishing company went under. It was called the ESPN Fly Fishing School. It was the first interactive video done on fly fishing, I think, ever. And it was quite a good project. It took me about a year to, you know, from start to finish on it, maybe a year and a half. So it, that was really fun because we brought everyone back. And that was probably a couple of years after it. So we went back and, and we shot up on Depew's Spring Creek, which is one of my favorite places in the whole world. I love that place. And so I've had a lot of fun projects and I've done a bunch of commercials. I did a Miller beer commercial that was actually pretty classic where I, I, I had to double for a guy. We had to, I had to hit, hit the camera lens with a reverse cast. And had to literally hit the lens. And then they went in and they pinned it in the bare hook because it was about, a, it, it was a spoof on fly fishing where the guy who, who's the main character in the commercial, he, he shows up and there's a fly that's buzzing around him. And he looks in his, in his fly box and he decides to pick the bare hook because he wants to kill the fly. That's like a, you know, a little sort of spoof on fly fishing because they could do it back in because river runs through it was so popular you know now you don't hardly see it in fly fishing uh in, in commercials but it was it was quite quite the thing there for a while and anyhow i so i had to do that cast but the funny thing about that story is that i got hired three days before my wedding and my wife god bless her you know she knew she knew i was a fly fisherman obviously and Maybe she didn't quite know the addiction that I had to it at that time or the passion I had for it, but she was pretty sure pretty, she knew because of River Runs Through It. And, and she came up in the set. And, and that's a funny story too, uh, when she met Redford. But what I wanted to say about this commercial was that <laughs> you guys I got, are, you guys are no longer married. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love, I love Robert Redford. Well, I'll tell you a story about my wife, but, but, but so, so I, I found out about that commercial literally three days before. We're going to get married and go to Guanaja. So she knew, you know, to, to an extent, she knew what she was getting herself into by marrying me, but I don't think she really realized what had happened, which was that, Oh, honey, we're, we can't go to Guanaja. Instead, we're going to Sedona and we'll leave Sunday morning after we get married. Uh, and it was a, it was a very lucrative project because the, 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 uh, and it was, uh, you know, I was in the Screen Actors Guild because of, of my role. In River Runs Through, where I ended up doubling for Brad Pitt in that final scene that I created, you know, where he, he he swims down the river. That was sort of my creation that I pitched to Redford, and then I ended up doing it. But so I got in the union, and so I I made quite a bit of money doing talent work. Uh, and that 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 one commercial was uh, it played every Monday night football. And as you might know, the the residuals. Of course, I don't know about today, but the residuals back then were great. So that was a that was a fun little project. That was you bobbing downstream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that's a cool story too. But I, I think that before I get into that story, <laughs> my wife's gonna kill me. But you know, I was on the set with my wife and we walked into this little trailer, and this is so I think this is ninety-one, and Redford turns around and I said, Hey Bob, I'd like you to meet at the time we weren't married, I'd like you to meet my girlfriend, Molly. So <laughs> Redford turns around and my wife freezes. 
and Bob sticks out her hand, his hand, and she just freezes because she didn't know because she thought she didn't know that we called him Bob, and oh. she didn't know that he would be in the trailer. You know, the next thing I know, I'm I'm like kind of had to tap her so she'd put her hand out to shake his hand. Right. Well, there's a story. There's an urban legend about Redford where it's, and I've heard it from two different sides where he is, this woman was standing in line in the Sundance waiting for an ice cream cone and Redford comes up and is like two or three people behind her. And she apparently had gone to high school with him and she, she just kind of froze because that he has this effect on people. So she doesn't know what she's going to do. And she goes and she orders her ice cream. And then she, she turns around, she walks out and she gets to the sidewalk. She, and she goes right past him because she doesn't have the, the, you know, the courage to say anything like, oh, I went to school with you and yeah, whatever. So she gets kind of mad and she goes back in because she, she realizes that she didn't get her ice cream. So she goes in and she starts arguing with the ice cream guy across the counter. And then Redford taps her on the, on the shoulder and says, lady, the ice cream's in your purse. Oh no. <laughs> She had been so nervous, she hadn't thought about it. So, anyhow, that that that's kind of Redford was like that. And I remember the first time I met him. You know, I kind of expected him to be in, you know, like really uh, like in jeans and a flannel shirt or something. And he was very, you know, he he's is a very elegant dresser. Didn't you guys have a couple of fish put aside and then they got lost, or one of them got lost? Well, that- you had to find it again. You know, it's fun. It, we, we, we went down to the, the, the big, one of the big days. We went down to the pond and we had cordoned off this area where the spring came in with fencing and some kind of a varmint had gotten in there. I think it was a raccoon or a couple of raccoons. And they had, you know, to try to get after the fish, they probably got a fish or two, but they destroyed the fencing and all the fish were gone. So Jason and I had to, I mean, it was just like heart attack because we had a crew of like 150 people waiting for us and waiting for the fish with Joe Urbani, who was our fisheries guy who, you know, who trucked the fish from the pond up to the, to the Gallatin. And it was, it was panic time, but you know, you, you, you don't panic, you know, you just deal. And, and so we just put on some, I don't know what, what it was, probably streamers or, Maybe actually, we probably threw grain <laughs> and put on some hair's ears, you know, and just you know caught fish and put them in put them in the the fish cart, and we got enough fish to to make it work. There there is a a scene where if you look hard enough, and trust me, I I, I have not really noticed it. We had to use a female and a male, so. There's a scene where you, if you look really closely there at the end, that's that's in that big scene. And, and remember, I was I was in that scene as the stunt double, so it was that was very hard for me because I I basically wasn't able to be the consultant for that scene because I was in it, you know. Even though I created it, and so that's an interesting story. That's in the book. Is that scene took place based on uh, Redford going through all the storyboards, and then he hadn't we hadn't he didn't ask me to do that final scene. He, he said, well, John, have you thought of anything about the, the final scene? And I remember looking at Patrick Markey, the producer, and he's kind of like, oh, but this idea came in in my head. And it was based on a friend of mine who had, had who had told me, this guy, Thomas Rocky, about about playing this big brown on uh, on the big hole and how he had to make a decision to swim the river with it and go under a bridge in order to land it. So it just came to me and I said, you know, what if, you know, the Brad Pitt character is, you know, he's, he's, and I, and I explained the whole thing that scene you see now, 
I pitched to Redford. You know, everything, including that fish on the other side of the of the the big current. You know, Brad trying to get up all the way. The well, it was the Paul character trying to get a good cast in and reaching over, and then it, finally, you know, getting a good drift in there, and then the thing takes off, and he realizes in order to 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 land it, he has to either break it off or actually go into that to that current and swim with that fish. And and I stopped right about there, and and Redford looks at me and he goes, "Then what?" I knew he, you know, he, he, he loved it. And, uh, we didn't really didn't know how that scene would end. We, even when we shot it and, you know, but what's funny is that I, I, I walked out of the trailer after pitching that and Redford said, can you please go, you know, where you do this? And I said, yeah. And he goes, can you do it? And I said, yeah. And so they sent up the next day, they sent the, the, the rescue team out and, and I videotaped. I still have the video of me going down that thing with no helmet and just a, a wetsuit. And, uh, a little crazy, but I wouldn't do it now. Of course, that was almost 30 years ago. It's, well, it's actually 29 years ago and 29. And I'm, you know, so it's, you can figure out, I was 29. So you can figure out how old I am now. The, the classic thing was Patrick was, you know, I, I walked out, I just, just barely gotten down the stairs and Patrick's like all these expletives, you know, and, and puts me up against the trailer and says, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> Because you're in, in, in production, you, you know, you don't talk directly to the director with an idea that was very expensive, by the way. But, uh, I did. And now it's sort of, uh, my claim to fame. That is hilarious. That's why he was in the behind you saying to just don't say anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that is And the thing funny. about it, when, it, it, the thing about that scene was pretty funny is that, or just coincidental is the, you know, the first time I did it, you know, I, I was, I thought I might do it once, you know, and then Philippe Rousselot, who's the, the cinematographer, you know, he, he, he said, you know, John never killed anyone. Uh, are you going to die? And I said, no, 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 no. Cause Philippe had done like the Emerald forest and he'd done the bear and, you know, Academy award winning cinematographer. I said, no, no, it's fine. Philippe. He said, okay, we do it five times. Oh, five. And I really thought I'd do it once. Yeah. I went, I did that. I swam that river five times. And, and the first time I, I, I missed the mark, you know, because I probably hadn't been listening or I was nervous or whatever. And he just got pissed off because I needed to be 10 feet away from the camera, not right underneath it. And so I did it again the second time. And that time Jerry Seen put this, the bottle in, in a crack and it went down and got stuck in it in the, and, and it pulled me into a hydraulic and I had to let go of the rod, but I went under this wave, right? Well, the next three times I got it right, but it, the mistake that I made quote unquote mistake was the, was what they used in post because they loved the fact that I disappear. And in that scene it, where, where you see the Brad Pitt character disappear for a long period of time. Well, that was pretty much me, <laughs> you know, cause I had actually been dunked. And so they went back and they shot some stuff, actually some did some uh, pickups with Jason as the double. So we, we, there are a lot of different doubles. We all doubled for, I doubled for all three characters, uh, Jason and Jerry did the beautiful casting and, uh, now we got it done. That is unbelievable. Um, I have a question for you about just the sport and that time. I know that obviously everything changed after the movie came out and mm -hmm. you just really confirmed that to me when you told me that ESPN had a fly fishing se section or segment. Yes, it was a fly, it was actually an interactive fly fishing video. You got it in a box and it had discs. So what happened? I mean, it was so cool and s s on such an upward trend, and then it seemed to flatten out. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I I think what it shows is that fly fishing is elastic. The industry is very elastic, meaning that it can handle more people. The the big problem was the etiquette and the fact that people weren't, you know, there were guides that came in quickly that really weren't prepared to guide because it was lucrative and they weren't teaching people how to, you know, and even today now, you know, when I, when I learned, it took me two years to catch my first fish. If I take a client out uh, on the Roaring Fork and we don't catch a fish, frankly, it's, you know, I, I tell my people, this is not about catching. It's, that's why we call it fishing, right? But there are people that have expectations now because of it. And I'm not going back to River and Strood on it, but it, fly fishing now has a different, uh, in some places, it has it, it has a, an emphasis on catching. And to me, when you go back and you look at that story of, of River Runs Through It and, and the way that the father passed down you know, his passion to his kids, and he wouldn't even let them put a fly on their rod until they knew how to, how to cast. And that, to me, is lost in, in a lot of ways, it, it, depending on who you talk to and, and, and how you learn. But I, I'm a big believer in that. And that's really what my book, I think, is about, is that process. But what I wanted to say is, to get into the book, is that, you know, I was known for so long as the guy who did sort of the physical part of those scenes, you know, in terms of the fly fishing and, and built that team. And what what really happened, though, is that I watched, you know, Redford brought John Bailey in to do the post-production, which was really hard for me because, you know, I felt like you know, I haven't been having been out there and, and put my heart and soul in it and being in there every day. John just kind of came in and same with, with uh, Gary. But I think the reality is that, you know, I, I was a Californian. I was 29. And John Bailey was a second generation Montanan and, who was an outfitter. And Bob made that choice. Uh, and but it was hard for me because I but but what was interesting is, you know, serendipity is, is to me is is an amazing thing because because I had not seen the cut, you know, until they brought me in to watch it, you know, as a rough cut, it was pretty much a done cut by then. The impact that it had on me, I, I, I didn't look to see about the, the, the female fish or the, or the uh, male fish. I didn't look to see if you couldn't tell the difference between the, the graphite uh, replicas that we made of those bamboo rods so that we got a tighter loop. I, I didn't look for any of that because I got so sucked into this story about loss and about grief and about memory and about honoring. And I'm telling you, April, when I, I was so emotional watching that film, the end of it. And I think a lot of people still today will say that they are. And, uh, I, I hit something, you know, I, I, I knew that I had hit something and it took me a lot longer to come around to it, to, to understand what it was. And it was, uh, the fact that I also had a brother named Paul who died and, you know, he was uh, nine years old and I was 10 when he died and we were both in the same room, uh, bunk beds, uh, you know, a bunk bed for my whole life. And I had just not dealt with it. And that's what Norman McLean said too, that it took him until he was in his seventies to really be able to write what he wrote about his brother and river runs through it. And it was a novella uh, that, was nominated for that year is there's only one, one story that was up for a Pulitzer prize and it was a river runs through it, but it, he didn't get the actual prize, but it's a beautiful book. And it's really as much as, you know, Redford would always say, John, this is not a story about fly fishing. 
You know, it's a story about family. And of course, of course, it's also the holy grail of fly fishing, as, as we all know, and it still is. In fact, it's, I think, considered one of the, one of the best outdoor films ever made to, uh, in a lot of polls still today. But I, that, that started a journey for me, April, about sort of looking into my own grief and discovering what that means and what, what the rule, what the water in, in these stories, uh, you know, means to me in terms of the fact that I'm in it so much and I'm so passionate about it. And what is it? You know, for a long time, I was concerned that maybe it was, I was running away, you know, when I would go out fishing and uh, not dealing with whatever it might be. And I've come to, to understand that my love of water, it's like therapy. And I started to look into it. And that's what this book is really about. Grace by Waters is really stories that are about how we connect as human beings with the natural world and how important it is for someone like me who's who's had trauma in their life to connect and to be around it. And one of the things I say in the book is, you know, it's no coincidence that 70% of the earth is enveloped in water, that our bodies are more than 70% water. But when I look at you or you look at me, we look solid. When you look at the earth and the surface, it looks solid. But it's 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 another way, I believe, that God or the universe or, or how this works, I don't know. But it's it's an illusion because we're not solid. We're actually vastly more water than we are solid. And there's a lot of illusion in life. And I think we're seeing that now, uh, especially with uh, what's been going on with the pandemic and now the riots. Uh, that, you know, there, there is no substance on earth that, it, that is more reflective of change than water. Now, and Heraclitus said, and I, and I love that quote, and I started, it's in my, the first page of my book. You know, he says, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he is not the same man. But it's true. We, we, we sometimes forget how transitory life is. And, there is nothing more emblematic of that kind of transience than, than water and, and watching it. And, and I, I tell, when I go out and take my clients, we'll sit down and we'll meditate a little bit before we fish. And, and I'll remind them that the water that's there in the creek or in the river is full of molecules that were in life and are just recycling to be in life again. And water is the, is the element here on this planet that is, makes this planet so unique. And the fact that we've chosen to be in it as fly fishermen, and especially in rivers and especially wading, although I do like to float too, and I do like to fish the ocean and especially the, the, uh, the beach. But there's something about the fact that we're not in a raft. We're not, uh, on a board surfing, which I, I, I kayak and, and I, uh, stand up paddle and surf and I do all those sports, but there's something about that, that silence that being that reminds me that, you know, that's, I'm a human being. I'm not a human doing. And that's why to me, fly fishing has the potential to heal. And you see it. I know that you're going to be talking to Chad and, and I believe that, and I know I, uh, that, that fly fishing it heals. And I say in the book, I, I, I do believe that I may, I may not have survived. I really think that fly fishing saved my life. And I, and I know that now, more than anything, because I, you know, I say that I have this thing called nature deficit disorder, which is a, uh, a term that was coined by Richard Louvre from Last Child in the Woods. And 
this, and I say that I have nature deficit disorder and that I suffer from that. And I said it a little bit tongue in cheek, perhaps, but not really because it's true. I mean, I, I, I need to have water in my life pretty much on a daily basis. Like, and I, I fished for a couple hours this morning down at the beach. And when we had this pandemic come through and the beaches were closed and the trails behind my house were locked down, I, went into a funk like I've never gone because I couldn't get out into nature. So I, I know now if there's any doubt that this is real, you know, that nature deficit disorder is real. Now, do, do all fishermen have that? Probably not. A lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the guys and, and gals that I fish with too, you know, we need to be out there. It's, it's part of our therapy. You know, it's, it's, it's therapeutic to be out in the water. And I could go on and on about that part of it. it it's, it's to me, it's, it, look, I, I want to catch a fish as much as the next guy, catch a big fish, right? And, but I have to, and, and part of the book is about this interesting dynamic that I've noticed between the, the getting or the wanting and the just being. And I think that the, we, we confuse that sometimes. And I, and I see it over and over again when we get too focused on the result and we're, and we forget about, sort of being in the present moment, some, some bad things can happen. Coming up, John and I continue our conversation. This Wednesday, the 17th, John will be joining me for a live presentation. I'll include the link in this write-up, but you can also find it by visiting anchoredoutdoors.com and just look for the turquoise registration button on the homepage. Space is limited, so be sure to sign up while you can. Again, thank you to Norvice for making this episode possible. The good folks at Norvice believe that you deserve to expect consistency and efficiency out of your tying system. When tying on the Norvice, you will quickly see the benefits of tying flies while physically spinning the vise. This is a remarkable feature that I strongly recommend watching on the Norvice YouTube channel. There are a lot of great rotary vices on the market, but only the Norvice spins the hook. It's for this reason that it's been said that Norvice is the most innovative fly tying system on the market. Never again do you have to wind slack thread onto your bobbin spool. Norvice Auto Bobbin does the work for you. For more information, visit norvice.com. That's www.nor-vice.com. And check them out on YouTube to see how you can maximize your tying time by relying on the functions and benefits of the tested and true Norvice. And we forget about sort of being in the present moment. Some some bad things can happen. Yeah, let's <laughs> talk about that. You're showing me your finger right now. Um, and I noticed that you're missing uh, the tip of it. So do tell. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Well, that, 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 was, that, that was on March 15th of this year. I had been doing some, uh, some introspective reading by a, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Poulter. And uh, just looking, you know, at my life, looking more under the hood, so to speak, of my life. And in, in particular, in the book, I, I talk a lot about the relationship with my father and the relationship with my son and how, how these things get passed down. And I think we're seeing it now with the, with the rioting and, and the, the, this here in the United States, in, in particular, with this sort of stepping back and looking at the systemic racism in my history, looking at. It, it's, it was really looking at what had been passed down to me and how I could change. And the only way I could really do that was to be vulnerable. So this, this book to me is about looking 
under the hood and it's about sharing my journey with the hope that sharing my grief will allow others to, sh- to share and process theirs. But it, it, it's, it's an ongoing process. And what happened on that day on the, on the 15th of March was that I, I was in my head, which I can often be, you know, that's the thing about fishing for me when I'm fishing, everything else goes away and I'm just focused on that moment. I'm focused on the fish I'm focused on the fly I'm focused on the drift. Uh, I'm focused on just being. And even when I guide, it's like that too. But in that moment I was in my head and there was somebody who came by with a dog and I've never tethered my dog before, but I knew people are starting to get weird about having dogs come up to them because of the, the virus and all that stuff. And I just wasn't thinking. And I, I took the tether and, and it was, you know, it was one of those uh, retractable leashes and I clipped it on him and I turned to go anchor it. And the next thing I know, uh, the dog was running full speed after a skateboarder and uh, no finger, just no fingertip. Just gone. How does and it was ended up down. It, my wife, I was just, I was just screaming. My wife came and we found my fingertip about thirty, about thirty feet below the, you know, the, the driveway. So uh, that was, that was, uh, you know. But you know, here's the way I look at it. It's like anything. You know, it's. I don't, I don't believe anything happens. I think everything happens for a reason. And I know some people disagree with me. But that's just how I see things. And I believe that, yeah, there's, there's, there's cause and effect, right? Uh, but to me, that's a, that was a lesson of just, I can't do that. I can't, I can't afford to not be present. This one split second of not being present. And I lost, you know, a, a quarter inch or a half an inch of my finger, you know, all the way past the, the uh, nail bed. But, you know, it, it, it's grown back. And that's the thing. It's, you know, this is the, nothing stays the same. Nothing stays the same. And we have to learn how to adapt. We get up. And we move forward. We don't, we don't, we don't just get stuck in the past. And again, for me, there is, there is no better metaphor for change and for being present than, than water and then especially rivers. So that's really what the book is about is sort of those, those ponderings and those uh, insights, especially around loss and uh, I have some fun stuff about the movie and I have other stuff in the book that's, just about my fishing in New Zealand and Belize and a lot of, of the fishing here in the West. But it, it's, it's really, it's really about uh, my journey with loss. Cause in the end, you know, we, it's, we, we, you know, life is catch and release too. You know, we have to let go. And uh, you know, th- that's something else I wanted to say is that, you know, Joe Brooks, I, I was the research producer for the film that came out last year about Joe and Joe of course was one of the founding fathers of I would say conservation and catch and release along with uh, Lee Wolf and you know Joe was Joe almost died from alcoholism and I think that these kinds of events that bring us to the brink that really challenge who we are as people and look at how we're living are these markers in our life where we have the opportunity to start to live in a different way and Joe did you know, Joe got sober and he um, ended up being one of the founding fathers of catch and release. You know, there's a story about him doing catch and release in Argentina. And the men who saw him release his fish, they didn't know what he was doing. They thought he was crazy. And I think there's a spiritual aspect to that. 
I really do. I think that that gesture that we make by letting our fish go makes our sport unique in the sense of giving back. To me, there's a spiritual element of that. There's this piece of spirit that runs through, runs through it, you know, a river runs through it. And uh, I just feel very blessed that I was brought onto that film in, in a lot of ways, standing in the, in the, in the shoes of, of, or the waiting boots of Norman. I, I was 29 is happenstance to a degree or serendipity. And he wanted to, to be in charge of those fly fishing scenes and how I, how I ended up at 29 doing that. I'll never know, except that I don't believe that anything happens not for a reason. And uh, so hopefully the book has come out of that in that way. And, uh, but uh, it, it took a lot, lot longer than any of the TV shows I've ever done to really write great prose. And I know that Norman talked about that too. And then also to have the courage to, to write about, about my brothers because I've lost two brothers and uh, we fished uh, you know, when we were kids. And, and so there's, there's some of that legacy that, that I was turned on to uh, back in, in the early nineties in Montana. How John, and I wanted to ask you this earlier, but I didn't, couldn't, I didn't really know how to, how did you lose your, your brother mm. when you were nine and 10? Well, he was Paul Stewart Deitch was his name. And he was about uh, about 18 months younger than me. And when he was born, he was born a blue baby. And there are different levels of blue baby. Uh, you know, you, we all know that when you see that color in someone's skin, that they're not, they don't have enough oxygen. In his case, he had seven heart defects. And it was, his heart, heart was transposed. Um, and it was also on the wrong side. A dextocardia, I think, was one of them. And um, he had uh, tetralogy of Fallot. Those were two of the defects. And then he had five other ones. So he was actually, if you looked at him, except for the blue color tent that when he would try to exercise or um, exert himself, he, he looked just like any, any other young man. But I really was sort of his keeper. And uh, we were in the same room our, uh, you know, our whole lives. And um, he, you know, he, they, they didn't think he would live past two. But, you know, when he got to the age of nine, and it's in my book, so I don't really want to ruin the story, so to speak. But um, I, I felt a lot of guilt w- the way that he passed away. And this book was uh, a means of, of forgiving myself and for understanding that sometimes when we think that we're God in, in those kinds of things, that's when we can really start to have issues. You know, uh, alcoholism, addiction, obesity, what, you know, you name it. And what, what I learned from going back and, and, uh, you know, it started with that moment in the, uh, rough cut of River Runs Through It, you know, and understanding that I, I sort of thought, well, I, I, I'm, I still have another, you know, 15, 20 years to write this because Norman waited till he was in his early seventies. Uh, but <laughs> I, um, but I, you know, I, I, it was, I was a lot younger than, than Norman. So it's probably about the same amount of time in terms of going through the grief process and, and deciding to write something to honor my brother and in his life. But, uh, but he, he passed away because his heart just, just gave out and we had just been bike riding and he had been trying to keep up with me. And he had a, because I don't think he just wanted to, to live like that, to live, not being able to be like, uh, like everyone else. And, you know, I, I think it's it's important that we all, especially in this time, understand what grief is and understand what happens when we don't deal with it, when we don't 
actually take the time to get in touch with those feelings and to be vulnerable. And I, it, vulnerability, especially as a man, is probably the greatest strength we can have. And unfortunately, somewhere along the way, the idea of being vulnerable was looked at as being weak. And that to me has got to change. It, it, and vulnerability means having the courage to look inside and to ask questions and to share those insights and to ask those questions without just going to denial. And, and it's a process. And it, for whatever reason, you know, Norman saw this in a lot of ways in terms of his book and, and the river. And I do too. I, I see the, the, you know, he, the, the thing that really, I think drove me April to, to write the book was this insight that, that Norman had about the words under the rocks. He said, there are words under the rocks and some of them are theirs. What he was referring to, of course, was to Paul and his mom and his dad and, and our ancestors. And I do believe that, you know, those molecules that have all been in life and have been in other human bodies that are flowing past us as we're fishing have messages. And it's really a matter of getting to a place where we can understand, you know, and to listen. And that takes some, that, 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 that's a whole other art, you know, other than just the fly fishing is to, to be open to this other, other way of being and to listen to what our ancestors have to say, maybe from the other side in some way, shape or form. So that's really, I think that's, that, that was my goal when I, when I wrote the book was to, to, to share that. My brain is processing. Mm-hmm. My eyes are flooding and I keep telling myself to just like, don't cry, don't break. Cause what you're saying is resonating. And I, I just, I know like for me with all of the panic mm-hmm. and all of the, just the pain in the world right now, um, you've got me like, like I've just, I find that I end up like bumping myself into distraction is that something that you're familiar with? Like, do you guys, how do you get beyond mm-hmm. just being, um, I'm sorry. It's just like, so there's just, yeah. But how do we take everything that's going on right now and just process it? So it's not so paralyzing. Sorry. Wow. That was unexpected. Mm. You know, I, I, I'm going to tell you a little story about, uh, well, I told you a story about my finger. That that really threw me off, and you know to to be going through the pan the beginning of the pandemic and having to deal with that not only in terms of going to the to the hospital but uh, you know in the ambulance and then they tried to put my finger back on and it just didn't happen. But you know it I don't know if we'll ever be able to go back to the way we were. I, I just don't think that I think that that's. But but do we ever? And I think that's what Heraclitus was meant, what meant by, you know, and for me, the way that I deal with it is I go fishing. It's my, like I said, it's my therapy. And, and by the way, I just want to acknowledge your grief because that's what this is to me is it's pandemic grief and we are all feeling it. And a lot of us don't want to go there, you know, it's because it's painful. And there's something in my head that always said, you know, if I cry, I don't want to use the word, but you know, I'm, I'm weak. And, uh, 
somebody asked me if I, if I cried a lot when I wrote the book and I did, you know, it was therapy for me. And, you know, I think at some point we, if we, if we overindulge in this kind of stuff, it's not healthy. No question. Right. I mean, staring at the navel doesn't do us a lot of good, but on the other hand, not looking at it and not having the courage to ask the questions and to, to not judge, not to prejudge. That's what prejudice is. It's prejudging. And it's a lot of work. This is not something that's going to take place in my personal life. You know, the changes I've made, this is, ta- this is, this has taken a long time. This book has been a process that's almost been eight, nine years. And, uh, what I wanted to say is that, you know, I got to a point, was it, I guess a week ago, Saturday, I'm not sure what the date would be, but it was Saturday night was the first riot here in Los Angeles. And they said that there was going to be a curfew. And my wife and I had plans to go down to Manhattan beach, which is about a half an hour from here on the freeways through not a great part of town or can be. And even saying that is, you know, but it, and that's the thing we where where, where we're transitioning. But it, it's it's it, it. There was when I say great part of town, it's not a great part of town up, up, up where there had been riots before, and I didn't know if they would spread. But my wife and I talked about about whether whether or not we would go to this little dinner party. You know, we, we were. Was, I was outside. It was just with two other people, so we were going to do some. Uh, social distancing and we hadn't done much at all. And it was one of the first times. And you know, we said, we said, April, we said, you know what? We are not going to be driven by fear, but we're not going to be reckless either. And so we went down and, uh, we had a nice dinner with these folks and we ended up driving back and we found out that there had been some other curfews in other towns nearby. And I had plans to go fishing the next day. And the reason I wanted to go fishing is that I needed to get, it was trout fishing in a little stream that uh, is one of my favorites and it's not very far from my house. And I ended up going the next day. I talked to my wife and said, are you going to be okay? Because we didn't know what was going to be going on. And I didn't know if it would just die down or it would get worse or what happened. But I went up there and I, and I had, I had, I had a spiritual experience. I mean, I had a, it, I just got aligned it's like going to the chiropractor or going to the masseuse or going, you know, a lot of people do it with the hiking or, but it was just me in the water. And I think I landed like, I don't know, a hundred fish. And it was just, you know, it was just one of those, one of those times where whatever it is when I'm on the river and more so even within in the ocean where I just, I feel like there's a presence and that's where I feel the presence I know, and I, and I do, I call it God in, in the book, but it's, 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 it's the source of the river. It's the universe. It's, it's this, it's this connection that I don't find, even if I'm in church practically, it's, it's, there's something there in the water that I know Norman talked about, you know, and in a probably a more subtle way than I do, but it, it happened and it was there and I felt so alive. And I got back in my car and I'm driving back to LA and, it was like turning on the radio during War of the Worlds. You know, Santa Monica, which is where I used to live, you know, was, you know, a bunch of places were on fire and all the exits were closed and the, you know, they, they'd vandalized the whole thing and it's still all board, boarded up. And Santa Monica is like not open. I mean, it, it's still today, it's like almost, uh, you know, a week and a half later. And I guess what I'm saying is that there's, 
for me, the distraction, if the distraction is a distraction, how do I say it? It's, I can be escaping or I can be going inward. And if I'm always trying to go outward, it's, it's, that's to me is distraction. When I'm doing something to go inward, then I can heal. You know, and sometimes it's not, it's, it's not, it's not pleasant, you know, but I'll tell you, for me, fishing is always, there's just something there that's just, it's just therapeutic. And it's a way for me to unwind. It's a way for me to, to be, to go inward. These are really rough times, especially for you as a young mother. I mean, it's, it's, um, and it's really interesting to thank you for sharing your grief with me because, you know, sometimes I think that here in the United States that we're, we're experiencing this more, you know, but that's again, my prejudgment, you know, it, it's, of course, everyone's feeling it. And, and I, and I, I appreciate you sharing that with everybody and with me. And I hope that you won't edit that out because, you know, that's, that's, that's truth. And we, you know, authenticity is, is just, we have to become more, authentic. We, we have to, we have to go there. We just have to go there. I just noticed, you know, for everybody has their own vices. I work harder. So I distract myself by working harder and staying busier. And when it does hit, it hits hard. So I've always, and I've had grief through my life. We all have. So I've been able to always balance it by spending a lot of time outside. And I find that the busier I get as an adult and as a working mom, that I have a harder time going back to those, being able to spend 10 hours of just playing in the water or, you know, sitting in the forest and waiting for animals to walk by. It's harder to be able to find the time to do that. And it's really starting to take its toll. So how would you address, I mean, it's easy to speak to the 20 year olds who have time to do that, but what about a lot of us who are in their thirties, forties, fifties, who are so busy and, and we know deep down that we need to take that time to have that connection with the water, to not have that nature deficit disorder, but we don't know how to find, find the time to do it. What would you suggest to, to those people? Well, I, I think I grew up with this theory that, you know, don't just sit there, do something. And now I ascribe to a little different philosophy, which is don't just sit there, do nothing. And it sounds so un-American. It sounds so unindustrious. And I'm not saying that we do that, that you should do that all the time, that I should do that all the time. But I, like I said, I, I went through this funk. Like I've, I, I've, I've never been, I've never experienced because I couldn't get to the beach. I, some of this was theory until the pandemic hit and the realization that I really have to get to water. I have to get to the mountains. I have to get to nature was no longer theory. So you asked me about the pandemic and the lack of access that I had to the beach and to the mountains. Cause I live literally about a quarter mile from the beach and a quarter mile from the mountains. And we have hundreds of miles of trails behind my house. You know, I, when I started writing the book, there were very few studies on the effects of nature on the brain. And since that time, I think I started writing it in, in 2012, there have been over a thousand studies on how humans need to immerse themselves in nature in order to be mentally healthy. Mental health suffers when we don't have access to nature. Immersion in nature two hours a week has been proven to 
significantly improve mental health. Now, when I, when I started writing the book, I remember thinking like, well, I mean, why do I have to write a book about this when I know that that's the case? And we all know as fishermen, you know, I go out there, I feel good. Well, I think it's important, especially now with the pandemic, because I, I've never, I've never experienced that kind of, of funk that, that I had, uh, a lot of it was the finger, uh, the pandemic, uh, the book coming out and knowing that I was going to be, you know, that kind of vulnerability when you, when you tell personal stories like that and such, but, but I, I didn't have my place. I didn't have my, my river. I didn't have my, my ocean. I didn't have my Creek and my, my, my hiking trail. So there's something there in terms of, at least for me to make time on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis. And I, I'm trying to find a way where I don't always have to get it from being in water. And that's part of what the book is about is how can, how can we as fishermen or as just human beings go to an experience that is, that is invigorating and inspiring and insightful in, in nature and bring it back to us in an urban setting and have it last. I guess my bigger question, if I had to really throw a question at you that you could probably answer, do you offer any exercises in your book for people to try to utilize or, or practice so that they can stay connected or at least be able to not feel guilty about just sitting down and maybe not fishing, maybe just sitting down and enjoying the sound of the water? Well, I, I think that I, I answer that by saying this, that each of my stories ends with a prayer. And to me, prayer is meditation. And meditation and prayer are the same things. And source or the universe is the same thing as God. So it's it's really about the language here, but it, it is taking time to connect on on another level. I'm not saying that we're not used to doing that, but it's really about connection because I think I have a lot of fear of being vulnerable, right? Of sharing things that uh, I'm not supposed to share. You know, my dad read read the book and and he said, "You're sharing family secrets," and and I was like, "Yeah," <laughs> you know. And part of that is that I believe that, and and I say in the book that um, we have to look at our shadows because by looking at our shadows it tells us where the light is coming from and therefore it directs us to the light and we can get stuck in the shadows too. That's the problem. You know, that's the challenge. That's the, where the fear comes in, you know, to me is uh, we don't want to, we don't want to go there. Most of us don't even know. We don't want to go there. We just go like, Ooh, God, I don't want to, you know, it's like, and I, you know, but, but that, that's to me is what's happening. That's what the, that's what's happening right now in the world is we're seeing our shadows. And we're seeing death in terms of the COVID. And uh, we're seeing this potential for us to not be non-judgmental. You know, there's this, this pre-judging that takes place. I, I'm guilty of it too. And this is the thing. It takes, I think it takes a lot of work. But it's the kind of work that might be sitting down and, and not thinking. So for me, it's the not thinking. And, and part of what, I mean, I know I'm a, I, I overthink. That's my that's my drug of choice. 
And I'm trying not to. I'm trying to let it go. I'm trying to be more in the flow. You know, in the river, we just when I'm out there, it's all there. When I when I'm in a city, when I'm when I'm around concrete, there's not much natural uh, juice there that to tell me how to be. But when I'm in nature and I'm in a river, it's I don't I'm just there and I and I'm observing. I'm and I'm part of the ecosystem. Everything is the way it should be. Now I'm not saying I should always do that, and that was that's one of the things in my book where I talk about. I actually had a, a, a there's there, there's a story in my book called uh, intervention for a fly fishing junkie, where I was I, I was literally there was is an intervention, you know, it's like we think that you fly fish too much, that you have like an issue. Well, I, I looked it up, I couldn't find fly fishing, you know, fly fisherman's anonymous, right? So it's like, <laughs> yeah. Plus, I don't want to stop fishing, but you know, it, it's interesting because. You know, I do talk about addiction in the book. And, you know, when you're talking about an addiction for, say, an eating disorder, you know, you can't just stop eating. You'll die, right? Now, maybe alcohol or drugs are different, but so there's different levels of, of that. And, you know, for me to, I considered stopping fly fishing. And I, there's, you know, it, when I, when I came out to California to, to write, that was one of the reasons that I did and to get into the film business to get away from Aspen where I was guided, guiding because I just would guide too much. I would fish too much. You know, I was just a fishaholic, you know, and then I got, I came here and found out that there were Corbina on the beach and, you know, I could actually go out in a skiff and, you know, there's oh, actually, there's actually some pretty good bass fishing in the golf courses and there's uh, the LA river for carp and, <laughs> oh, there's all these great little, you know, trout in the, the you know, in, in the, in the stream. So, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm in acceptance around my fishing disorder. And, uh, it's a great disorder to have. There could be a, like a lot of worse ones out there. Let me tell you. And I do have exercises actually. And the idea is to bring back those gifts from the water so that we can hopefully integrate them more when we're at our desks and have a way of, of remembering what we were connecting to. And, and bring it with us. So the river is, is, is in our souls. And, you know, to me, a river runs through it. To me, the it is, is our souls, our collective souls. And I, I like to think that there's a way to connect to that way of being uh, that we all feel when we're on the river and the camaraderie and the being a part of, of nature that we can bring into our lives when we come home. I think a follow-up book would be fantastic. Now, on that note, where can we get your book? When can we get your book? All of that information. On Amazon, if you'd like a signed copy, you need to look up pagesabookstore.com, and uh, I will sign a copy for you, and we will ship it out to you. That's pagesabookstore.com. And I'm really trying to uh, be cognizant of the fact that these little bookstores are really in need of some love. And uh, although Amazon is, you know, it's, if you do get it on Amazon, please, and you like the book, please write a review. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't, you can't get it on Amazon. Uh, and then of course I have another book called shadow casting, which I just looked up. It's $849 on Amazon. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand that, but, uh, I guess it must be really popular or something. Well, that means there's not very many copies. Do you sell any of your books direct? Yes, I do. Yeah. The shadow casting you can get from me. In fact, right before the podcast, I was trying to figure out how to, how to make that 
more uh, of an easy transaction. Um, I, I have a, a website, castlecreekproductions.com, and you can get the book there, and you can contact me there. I'm at john at castlecreekproductions.com, and I will soon have Grace by Waters and johndeach.com as well. Perfect, perfect. How much is the book? How much is the shadow casting book through your website? Uh, it's $846. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's a $20 book. I, I really, I have not, I've yet to figure out what that's about, but it's, it's, um, yeah, I guess because you can't get them. Uh, but, uh, it's a great book. That book is more, uh, an instructional book with some stories as well and photos from uh, the making of the film. And then Grace by Waters is really much more of a philosophical book with stories about loss and, and some funny stories too. In fact, I have four stories from a shadow casting that are in Grace by Waters. Sounds good. Now, John, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me before we wrap it up? Yeah, I actually do want to ask you what enticed you to do this? Because Which I know is? it's not, it's not like being able to get sponsored gear and go around the world and do this. I, it, what, what is it that, what is it that, that, uh, that brought you to doing podcasts about the outdoors and fishing? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, stories and reflection. Mm. Because I walk away from every single one of my interviews or conversations looking at how I can be better. So I take something away, you know, something different away from everybody. And I'm always learning through you guys. And with this conversation in particular, I'm going to have to really now sit back and go, okay, why am I being so distracted? And I'm going to have to really, I owe it to myself to learn from our conversation and apply it into my own life. So I guess selfishness is one of the reasons why I do this. But also I, I I feel like if I really need to hear a lot of these stories, some of them fun and lighthearted and some of them a lot more complicated, I, I think that other people probably need to hear them as well. And then just archiving the history, you know, I, I think that it's my duty to archive it where I can. And the podcast seems to be a great way to do that. It's great. Well, you have a great reputation and I've really enjoyed it. And I want to just say too, that, you know, to me, recovery, the concept of recovery is recovering our sanity. It's recovering that grace that, uh, you know, that unearned ability to, to be and to, to be happy. And that's there for, that's there for us. It's, it's always there. I, I look at it like going into water, you know, it's, God's grace is there for us always. We have to step into it. It's there for us to to just walk into, and we often don't. And I that's the part to me that's it's the fear. So I, I'm trying every day to live more out of faith than fear. But I'm I'm not perfect at that. I'll tell you. And uh, I think that's the message of waters, and that's what to me being graced by waters is. That concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Please help out the show by leaving a review. I do read all of your reviews and I look forward to reading what you have to say after every episode. Thanks again and I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.